0: And the facts is this, boys, there's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. Hi, and welcome to The Curve Podcast. My name is Andrew F. Pearce, and this podcast is recorded in Bulu, Perth, Western Australia. Sovereignty never ceded. In this special double interview episode, I chat with two of the creative minds behind Ben Affleck's latest film, Air. Air tells the story of how sports marketing executive Sonny Vaccaro, played by Matt Damon, pursued Michael Jordan and changed history for Nike and basketball with the creation of the iconic Air Jordan shoe. The first interview you'll hear is with Academy Award winning editor William Goldenberg, who reunites with Affleck for the fourth time, having won the Best Editing Oscar for Argo. In this discussion with Bill, he talks about the shorthand that he and Ben have built up over the years, how he creates emotion with an edit, and more. Following this interview is a discussion with costume designer Charlize Antoinette Jones. Charlize talks about her work creating era-specific clothing for the actors, the difficulty of sourcing material from the 80s, and how she helps the actors create their characters with their costumes, amongst more. Air is currently available to watch on Amazon Prime. To read Nadine's review of AIR, and to listen to other interviews with filmmakers, head over to thecurb.com.au. For now, here's a trailer for AIR, followed by the interviews with William Goldenberg and Charlize Antoinette Jones. 1984
1: has been a tough year. Our sales are down, our growth is down. Sonny, I brought you in here to grow the basketball business. People
0: don't know what the hell a Nike is.
1: What's a Converse?
0: NBA all-star shoe.
1: There's nothing cool about Nike. You would have to have a pretty compelling pitch. I can tell them the one thing the other companies can't compete with. Our basketball division is terrible. I do not love it. This is where you come up with a brilliant idea that no one else can see. Let's hear it. (laughs) I got it. I found him. Who's that, Jesus? Can't afford it. I'm willing to bet my career on one guy. My name's Sonny Vaccaro, I'm with Nike. Do you typically make it a habit of showing up at people's front doors unannounced? I don't like to take no for an answer. Oh man, here we go. You ask me what I do here, this is what I do. I find you players and I feel it this time. Yeah, okay, it's risky. When you were selling sneakers out of the back of your Plymouth, that was risky. Don't change that now. For a rookie Yes. who's never set foot on an NBA court. It, that's the literal definition of rookie. Yeah.
0: Congratulations on the film air. It is a really quite a brilliant film, uh, but it's also the fourth film that you've worked with Ben Affleck on. And I'm curious if you can talk about the creative relationship that you have with, with one another, and whether there's been a shorthand that's uh, been built up over time as you've worked on each new project.
2: Very much so. You know, our relationship on Gone Baby Gone was the first film I did with him. Was you know, he, it was a, he was a first time director, and it was obviously our first film together. And you know, we really obviously didn't know each other and um so he spent a lot more time sitting next to me you know going through dailies going through the cut you know because he was a first-time director it was a new relationship so I you know and he didn't know if I knew what I was doing or not so um um that film we were really happy with the way that film came out and and as the films have gone on we have more and more of a shorthand and more and we're obviously really comfortable with 17 years now so we're really comfortable with each other and trust each other's judgment and, you know, or we can speak freely with each other and not hurt each other's feelings. And, and, you know, everything is done with a smile and, and, you know, we just, I mean, I, you know, we, I, I'm speaking for him, but I think we love each other and to the point where there's this unadulterated trust, you know, so that we just, I don't know, he, he relies on me. I rely on him. You know, we, both have, keep an open mind around each other, like about ideas. And, you know, he, like, uh, he allows me the opportunity to make mistakes, you know, in terms of, let me try this. It may be terrible or, you know, but it may be great, you know, or may learn something from it and he doesn't, there's no judgment. And now he doesn't, you know, he's now got this company and he's got so many different things going on. So he can't spend as much time with me as he want, as he, uh, as he might want, but I think he knows he can rely on me to to, to do what's right. And, to, you know, so I'll, I'll make changes in, to the film without even letting him know. And he'll see it in the screening and know that I've made them. And, you know, and, and unless we get very close to the end, then I tell him about everything. Cause it's, you know, very, you know, we're getting real close to a finished movie, but, you know, he trusts me to, to, to do what I, what I think is necessary. And I think at this point, and he'll like, he'll have me try, he'll have me ask me to do things that it, sound impossible and he just feels like oh I'll, be, I'll figure it out or i'll figure it out you know billy will billy will take care of it and sometimes i've been successful in making things that weren't there and sometimes not i
0: i understand that your relationship as well has kind of changed to the sense that you edit on set is that correct like for air that you were on set editing in some capacity well i wasn't on set what happened was i mean
2: technically i was but um We shot the production office, the set, all the sets, almost all the sets and the editing room and the wardrobe department, the production design, everything in one building in Santa Monica, California, about 10 minutes from my house, which was wonderful. Um, So everything was right there. So he would, between takes, between setups, he'd come down to my room and see what I, what new things I've cut. And he would oftentimes love them and take them and, a little device and take them up to the set and show and and show the crew scenes like five minutes after I finished cutting them Um, so and what was great about it was there were times and we were shooting so quickly um, there were times where I would put stuff together and put two scenes together and like wait a second that doesn't work you know we need to can't go from that to that there's a passage of time here we need a transition or we need a, a line here to explain where he's going and at the end of the day or somebody's in the middle of the day, Ben and Matt would come down to my office in my cutting room and we would just talk about, okay, what if he did this? What about this? And come up with ideas about how to get from A to B. And just for me to be in the room while that was happening, and it was so f- much fun, you know, and, and so inspiring to watch them and occasionally I would actually say something. And then they would literally a couple of times go, okay, great. We'll, we'll do that. And we'll be right back. And they would literally run out, down the hall to the set and shoot it, you know, because everything was lit. And, you know, Bob Richardson, who's a genius, would, you know, just tweak the lights and they would go, okay, give me this extra and this guy, and you say that and boom, you know, and it would be the next day, it would be my Avid, you know, and I would cut it in. So that was, you know, again, because we were shooting so fast and I was working, you know, long, long days to keep up the camera so that they would always be able to see what they – just shot, so they would inform the next day what they needed to pick anything up um, because of the, of the pace they were moving. And there was very maybe one time where we where I had to go and get an extra piece of coverage of Matt for a scene. But you know the 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 tr- a few times where the transitions were like we need to shoot us something here. You know you can't. Oh, you know it was like when he goes and sees George Raveling in Los Angeles. You know, that little scene where Matt runs out and goes, you know, I'm, I'm going to L.A. to see Jordan Radling. And well, that we made up in the room like 10 minutes before they shot it, you know, because we need to explain who this is and where he's going. And and it was Matt's idea and it was just genius. And of course, he's such a fine actor. He could sell anything. And that was a real benefit of being on the set. And, um, and it was also I mean, it was like, like I said, making a really high end college film kind of. Yeah, with Bob Richardson and the grand greater.
0: It sounds like it's a, a really like a, a, even more of a collaborative process. Obviously filmmaking is a collaborative process, but even more of a collaborative process than having you there to be able to bounce that feedback off. I'm curious when you edit, do you usually edit to a temp score or anything like that? And it, how music kind of factored into your editing style for air?
2: Well, I try, I try mostly not to cut with music, you know, um, Because what happens is you consciously or subconsciously, you start editing to the rhythm of the music and not to the editing. And you fool yourself into thinking something works when it might not, or works better than you think it does. So generally what I try and do, I mean, almost in every case is I'll, I'll edit the scene to where I really feel like it's strong and playing and then put music in because then the music lifts it as opposed to do support, you know, as opposed to just, fake, you know, it might fake you into thinking it was better than it is. And when you take the music out, you're like, eh, not that good. So you want the music to just elevate, not, you know, make it. You know what I mean? You want it to take something, I feel like you should be able to play the whole movie without music and then put the music in. You know, it should work without the music and then where you need to elevate it or, you know, shade it, then you can do that. But to rely on it is a mistake. So I try to not you know, I, it, with action scenes, the same thing. I try not to put the music until I feel like it's really working well. And this movie is obviously has a lot of songs um, and um, which was made it really fun. But it just and then it just elevated things that were already working
0: there. It also reflects the era that it's set in too. I'm curious if you can talk about how you managed to kind of reflect that it's almost like a it is a sports film in a way, but with precious little sports, but we get the feeling of a game play taking place because of the negotiation and stuff like that. How do you reflect that vibe and the eighties vibe in an edit?
2: Well, I mean, luckily for me, a lot of the work was done for me. I mean, you know, the, the production design and the costumes and the set deck, you know, set decoration were so spot on. And they gave me such great pieces of film, like inserts and cutaways to different things. And it, was able to use all that as texture to like set the set the world and make it you know make it feel so much like the 80s, you know whether it was like cutting to Sonny's shoes and seeing his floppy bell bottom pants or you know little video games they were playing just little touches just threw the audience back into the 80s especially I mean through me in the 80s you know I'm the first audience for the cut materials so if I feel it then I figured well I'm assuming the audience will feel it too I and mean, hopefully they do. So, yeah, I mean, I, I try and I have all that sort of in my head and then try and like, you know, put it into the film. So, um, and yeah, and the, like I said, the music really helps set people, send people back to that era. And um, I don't know, I was in my tw- early 20s in the 80s. So I feel like it, it was serendipitous and it just kind of worked out like that. I I have I'm an 80s kind of guy anyway, <laughs> you know.
0: There is a surprising level of uh, emotionality that comes with the climax, which is kind of fair for the story in a way, but it's, you know, paired with a a lot of archival footage as well. Can you talk about blending that in, in those climactic moments of the film, how you managed to decide the beats of the, you know, the footage that's shot as well as the archival stuff?
2: You're talking about like when Born Born in the USA is playing at the very end? yeah. You know, obviously that's when we're telling what, what happened to each character, or, you know, or what, you know, a little more about them. And Ben shot those things f- to be very specific for each character. You know, um what's his name? Uh, uh, Matt Mayer's character who designed the shoe, you know, who designed the Jumpman logo and sort of the satisfaction of that. And and what's his name? Uh, uh, David Falk eating by himself in a restaurant. And. But then, you know, all this sort of archival stuff, some of it was scripted and some of it wasn't. And I just, you know, I had a ton, a ton, like uh, hours and hours and hours of archival stuff about Michael, about the time period and, and, you know, the footage of him with Obama and the footage of him at the Olympics and, and the footage of him with the trophy and his dad. Those were all decisions I made in the editing room because I've, they made me feel something. So again, I just, all I can rely on is the way I feel way things make me feel and hope the audience feels the same way and then in terms of all the sort of the legends you know or what what you know the writing and what happens we wanted all that to be as inspiring as the movie you know um so we we changed it a lot of times and you know what what do we want to say about sonny's character and the idea that he was he you know uh, paying ncaa athletes right now is such a big topic because it's all new and people can get paid and and Sonny was the the pioneer of that, so we thought, okay, that's that's something of real worth that he's done. and and it and you know, um families of athletes and athletes themselves have gotten you know billions more dollars because of Sonny, you know, or not just because of him, but the some based on a lot of the work that he did. And you know, it just felt like everything wanted to be an inspiration because we wanted to keep the tone of that movie, the tone of the film all the way through the end and you know again again you have these actors who like then then sitting there at his desk or stealing the candy that was like a last minute thing when he sold the candy based on you know the fact that they you know Sonny and and strasser took stuff earlier on and said it's not stealing you know if, if the cashier's not there and it was just a little touch you know a little touch of personality and you know, Ben is, is just a genius for detail, and um, gave me all these wonderful pieces of film to to make that emotional. And and Viola Davis, you know, just sitting on a porch can make you cry. <laughs> you know, she's just yeah. I mean, she's just like that phone call between Matt and her, where she asked for a piece of the shoe, is one of the most favorite things I've ever cut. And just a simple phone call, but the both of their acting is so wonderful and that's like to me one of the you know i guess the penultimate moment in the film and it was just so much fun and so rewarding to cut that scene because they're both so extraordinary and they both they both really were even though they weren't in the same room they shot it simultaneously you know in different parts of the building and and whenever you shoot a phone call if you can shoot both sides at the same time it always brings something special to it and Viola made just so many great choices as an actor. It was, uh, you know, it was just up to me to like, you know, use what she gave me. And, you know, and, and it was, you know, somebody's an actor can make me look really good.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. And, and thanks for another great film in uh, a great career. Congratulations.
2: I'm glad you liked it. Thank you
1: very much. Mr. Vicaro, now you do understand that Michael's intention is to sign with Adidas with Converse as a second option. I do. And with respect, I think that's a mistake. Um, I, I'll make a bet with you. I'll, I'll tell you exactly how those meetings are going to go. And if I'm wrong, then then don't take a meeting with Nike. But if I'm right, please consider that, that you and Michael come out. This is Converse, by the way. John O'Neill, he'll have his hair gelled up. A bunch of them will be wearing red ties for the bulls. John will have a Rolex for sure. Um, Now, I've seen a lot of basketball, but the feeling that I get when I see Michael, there's only a few other players who gave me that feeling. Now, when he's done, I'd love it if you would ask him a question. How's Michael gonna stand out from these other players? How's he gonna be different? What about Michael's meeting with Adidas? Michael's top choice is Adidas. Hello, Mrs. Jordan, welcome to... you can just tell me. Here's what they'll say we have the best shoes plain and simple all leather all the kids want to wear them converse isn't this cool and i mean this is me talking now and not adidas they're not wrong i i get why michael wants to go there here's what you should ask them Mm -hmm. who's running your company i think four different people in that room are going to give you four different answers and That's the problem at Adidas right now. And it's going to be a real headache for you for the next few years.
3: What should I ask you?
1: Ask me why I'm in Wilmington, North Carolina. Why are you in Wilmington, North Carolina? Because I believe in your son.
0: Congratulations on the film. It is uh, really quite a brilliant film and your work in there as uh, working with the costumes is is really quite impressive as well. I'm curious, uh, you know, for a, an era that is so known for excess and kind of over the top and all this kind of stuff, how do you corral that in the costumes and, and kind of manage that and create characters with that kind of excess with the costume design?
3: Yeah, so, you know, the cool thing about what we were doing, we were dealing with like such a short time period in the 80s. And we were dealing still in the early 80s, like pre-85. So a lot of what we think of as 80s is like late 80s, like mid to late 80s. And we were just on the cusp of that. So, you know, I leaned a little bit more into like late 70s aesthetics um, when it came to, you know, costuming some of our like background and um you know particularly like costuming in you know oregon and beaverton at nike as well as anything like 1984 and previous to in terms of research and like the rule was like make sure like this existed in 84 or we we're not showing it we're not doing it um, we're not entertaining it because I wanted it to feel grounded and real. I did the Whitney Houston film, I Want to Dance with Somebody, and that was very much very late 80s. So I was already in that world. And so it was cool to do something that was such a departure in terms of color, in terms of fabrications, like a lot of the fabrications, you know, like neons, like all that stuff wasn't happening yet. So it was really cool to get a glimpse in this like small window of time before you know, colors and fabrics exploded the way that we know in sportswear and in contemporary clothing. But then also to be able to show characters like David Falk, whose suiting, is pushing a little bit more, you know, fashion forward. You know what I mean? Like he's more of a Wall Street type dude, you know, and like playing around with the juxtapositions of that, because yeah, you have people that are like more stylish and more fashion forward. And then you have people who are a little bit behind the times. And I wanted to treat Beaverton, Oregon as being behind the times in terms of fashion and style and then being a startup and being scrappy. And so when you go out into these other parts of the world in our film, it's a little bit more ahead in terms of like what they're wearing, the silhouettes, the suiting, clothing and stuff like that.
0: This is kind of like, It's a story about the redefinition, I guess, is the best way of putting it, of sneaker culture and, and, you know, the birth of this icon, which is this shoe. I'm curious how you approach complementing a shoe like this with a costume design.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I just had to create an environment for for the shoe reveal to shine, you know, because it definitely marks the beginning of a whole new era. Like, that shoe you know, marked a whole new era culturally for Nike, for Michael Jordan. Like it, it really, so when we reveal it, that's why we don't have red in the film at all until that shoe is revealed. And that was a purposeful choice, you know, cause we wanted that reveal to be so like, ah, like this is the first time you're seeing red in the film and this red and black together. And like, it's just like, so groundbreaking right you know this the style of the shoe and all that is um so new and fresh and such a departure you know so even in the boardroom it's like everybody's in suits you know and then you have the sneaker that changed the game like so uh i just wanted to make sure like my costumes were period appropriate stylish cool and all that but also just really laid a really good foundation for the actors to shine for the story to shine and it didn't overpower anyone's performance or any of that, but also, you know, had enough subtlety to where and nuance to where people would be like, oh, this is the 80s. And this is a specific part of the country, you know, of the US. This is Germany in the 80s. You know, we don't have a lot of time to establish that, right? So I just wanted to be really specific about my choices to be able to tell the story, you know, through the costumes.
0: I imagine, obviously, the 80s, like, I'm an 80s kid, so it's a, it's not, you know, a, a close period of time away. Like, it's, it happened a while ago. Uh, fabric choices have changed and fabric styles have changed. And I'm curious if you can talk about possibly the difficulty of sourcing specific era fabric because it's a certain texture as well for that era. Yeah,
3: it was really, really hard. So, you know, we didn't have a lot of time, so we sourced a lot of, like, things from the period as much as we could but you know, particularly for a lot of our background and some for some of our principles, I did a lot of sourcing on like eBay and Etsy of like period, correct Armani suits. You know, um, a lot of David Falk suits were like sourced on eBay, right? Because I was like, I'm, I'm not gonna be able to find these fabrics and these fabrications. Um, and then for um, Phil Knight suiting, a lot of that was dead stock fabric that we just got super lucky just digging you know, we went to a couple of fabric stores that we know have dead stock and we found the the fabrics that would work that had the right texture and the right fabrications. You know, um, the glim plaid blue suit that he wore that we built. I'm, I every day I'm like, how did we pull that off? Because that's such a hard fabric. And Phil Knight actually wore something like that during that time. And we got super lucky, you know, we went to Western Costumes um, fabric room and they had dead stock fabric and it was just enough to make a suit, you know. So it was like those happy like moments where you're just like, oh, my God, I love what I do because it's so rewarding because you go on these like scavenger hunts and treasure hunts for fabrics. And and then you're like rewarded because you're like, I found it, you know, so that that happened a few times because. You know, we didn't have time to work with vendors out of the country. We had to source and find everything in L.A. and really use our resources in L.A. because we just didn't have enough time.
0: I'm curious, in, like, in helping an actor build a character as well, how important is it to have that kind of authentic texture for the fabric and the, the textile that you're using for the costumes?
3: I, I think it's important because I think it really gets them into the period you know, because this isn't, this isn't a texture they normally wear. This isn't a silhouette that they normally wear on top of that. And so I think it really helps them to like get into character faster um, when they're wearing these fabrics and silhouettes that are not their normal day to day. So you know, I would say in that sense, definitely also shoes, you know, um, a lot of us wear sneakers, we don't wear dress shoes, you know, and we don't wear, you know, certain types of like dress shoes, like Matt does not wear floor loafers in his day-to-day life. You know what I mean? But he wore them on the film. He's like, these are comfortable, man. Like, you know, so, and that, I think that kind of helped to get into character too, because Sonny's on the move, you know, and those loafers aided to him moving, moving and shaking, you know? Um, So yeah, I think it is like really, really important in terms of just getting them into like, dropping them into like where we are in place and time and you know, it's a way of time traveling. You know, I, a friend of mine said that to me recently. She's like, you tra- you time travel with your work. And I was like, yo, that's so true. And so I think it's a way for the actors to also time travel once they get these clothing and textures on their bodies.
0: I was going to say exactly that. Like, you you must do so much research prior to jumping into a film. And you absorb yourself in the era, the culture of the time and things like that. What does that do to your mind prior to even starting? Like, how do you, how do you deal with that?
3: Um, I enjoy it. I, you know, because like it feels like time traveling, you know, it does. And I I really enjoy it. I mean, I grew up in the eighties. I was very young. You know, I was actually born a year before this movie takes place. So I was a little baby kid in the 80s, but I remember a lot, you know, about the aesthetics and I have family photos, you know, of the time. So, um, and you know, especially of the like early 80s. So in terms of colors, you know, like I'm very familiar, um, you know, aesthetically, but like I didn't get to experience it and I didn't live it in the same way as someone who was a teenager during that time or in their 20s or even, you know, like 10 years older than me um so it was it's fun for me you know when i did a i did judas it was set in the 60s i felt the same way i was like i'm getting to like experience a period of time that i've always wanted to experience you know like because i'm doing this research and now we're actually building worlds around me that i'm actually immersed in every day you know like it's so cool you know i think in terms of like what it does to my mind i think it just like allows me to like be a better designer and just have more references you know, because I, I think it's very important to know like history, you know, in general and then like fashion history and like cultural, have cultural cultural understandings of why people wore what they wore and did what they did throughout time in, in this country and how much of that is like politically motivated, um, economically motivated, motivated by environment, you know, place, you know what I mean, like Oregon versus North Carolina um so i you know i'm i'm just like a huge nerd in this when it comes to this stuff so i love it
0: yeah, I mean, I love that. That's uh, Obviously, a costume can tell so much about a person, and it tells, as you're saying, their economic status, where they're from, and all that kind of stuff, and it, it informs so much of, in a historical perspective. But I'm curious then, when it comes to recreating or, or dressing real-life characters, how much you are able to kind of pull from who they are as an actual person and then apply that to the person who's portraying them, like, like Ben does with... Um, Phil Knight, of course, you know, they're they're very different looking people, but the style of stuff that they wear, how do you adapt it to the act of portraying them?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when in the case of someone that doesn't look exactly like the real person, I take like less creative liberties in terms of like straying too far from what the actual person wore. so for for Matt and Ben, because Matt doesn't look a lot like Sonny and Ben doesn't look a lot like Phil Knight, it was just really important to get the essence of what Phil Knight's style was and what Sonny's style was and get that on them, you know, get that on their bodies. And like, and for, um, for Phil Knight specifically, like really recreate looks. So people will be like, oh, that's Phil Knight. Like really recreate these suits, recreate these track looks, you know, and for Sonny, similarly, like, really recreate this character that feels like Sunny Vacara and so when you look up an image of Sunny Vacara you're like oh yeah like that makes sense the real Sunny dresses like that and the real Sunny actually came to set with his wife and saw Matt in costume and they freaked out because he, he's like I have that shirt she's like did you take that from his closet and I was like no but that's so rewarding and that rarely happens you know where like the real person comes to set and is one happy <laughs> Two, it's like, oh, you did a good job, you know, dressing someone like me and is, like, happy about it, you know. Um, so that that was really, really cool. It was really cool.
0: A lot of the conversation we're, we're having is reflecting back on the past, and I'm curious if you can talk about the decision that you made to become a costume designer. Was there a particular film or or theatre piece that you saw that you went, this is it, this is the career path I want to follow?
3: I think it was honestly – Malcolm X, Ruth Carter's Malcolm X, her costuming in Malcolm X, because Malcolm Little, who becomes Malcolm X, goes through so many changes through his costume throughout the course of the film. And it shows his transformation politically, spiritually, and, you know, through, through his assassination. And I just felt like she did an amazing job with that film and i don't think i was aware of costume design as a career like an obtainable career until i knew about her and i think i found out about her you know after that film came out and she i believe she she got nominated i think for that as well so um yeah i think malcolm x is probably like a huge reason why i'm a costume designer because i remember just being really affected by the costumes in that film as well as the story, you know, obviously, and the fact that a 27 year old black woman did it at the time was really dope. Um So that's definitely a reason why I'm here. And then another film, I have two more that are like really <laughs> so far from Malcolm X, Um Mary Poppins. Uh, three more, Mary Poppins, Cleopatra and Elizabeth Taylor. And Ben-Hur. So Ben-Hur is another film that shows the transformation, you know, the lead transformation over time through costuming, through the story. So that's another one like similar to Malcolm X that um, in that way. And then um, Mary Poppins is just so much fun and it's a period piece and it's just so fun. in the vaudeville and then Cleopatra is just like so ornate. Like they had the most money and they just did ridiculous things. Um, So yeah, I would say like those films had like a huge impact on me as a child because of the costuming and like me just really loving them and watching them for the costuming over and over again.
0: Thank you so much for your time, Charlize, and talking about your great work here. Congratulations. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what eras you dig into going forward. It's going to be great. Congratulations. So
3: nice to meet you. Thank you so much.